You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Cyber safety for the holidays. Using regulatory risk to pressure a ransomware victim. A call for regulatory action against a supply chain threat. Reset a malware, a warning, and a description. Extending local breaches in Google Workspace. Protestware in open source products. GRU Sandworm implicated in campaign against Danish electrical power providers. Jason Meller, founder and CEO of Collide, joins us as part of our sponsored Industry Voices segment to discuss the findings from the Shadow IT report. In this week's Threat Vector segment, David Moulton sits down with Sema Machada, a consultant at Unit 42, to discuss the fascinating world of social engineering attacks and donation scams exploiting sympathy. I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for November 16th, 2023. We are just eight days away from Black Friday, as many Americans have come to call the lonely shopping day after Thanksgiving, so it's not too early to start thinking about staying safer online. As you look for bargains galore, keep some advice from Visa in mind. A report from Visa outlined cyber threats facing consumers during the holiday season. Visa's data shows that for the top merchant categories targeted by fraudsters, 2022 holiday fraud rates increased 11% over their non-holiday fraud rate and saw an increase of 8% over the previous year during this time. The report warns users to be on the lookout for digital skimming, phishing, social engineering, ATM and POS skimming, one-time passcode bypass, provisioning fraud, and physical theft. Bleeping Computer reports that the Black Cat ransomware gang has dimed out one of its claimed victims to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Their victim, the criminals allege, failed to disclose a cyber incident that had a material impact on its business by filing an 8K within the prescribed four days. Black Cat claimed to have stolen data from software company Meridian Link on November 7th. Meridian Link has not paid, so the gang has reported the company to the SEC. However, Meridian Link states that they have found no evidence of data loss. The gang received an automated reply from the SEC, but it's unlikely their complaint will be found to have merit. For one thing, the SEC's new disclosure rule does not take formal effect until December 15th, even though companies are already adjusting their practices to come into compliance. And for another thing, public companies will be required to disclose attacks that have had a material impact. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has asked the Federal Trade Commission to stop resellers from selling set-top Android boxes and mobile devices known to be compromised with malware. 
The ban the EFF advocates would affect devices manufactured by Allwinner and Rockchip. These devices, the EFF says, were found by human researchers to be infected by bad box malware. The infected devices can also be used to stage other attacks without their owner's knowledge and expose them to legal risk as well as ordinary cyber risk. The EFF argues that this supply chain problem is a consumer protection issue, which therefore clearly lies within the FTC's remit. CISA, the FBI, and the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center have released a joint cybersecurity advisory describing the RESITA ransomware-as-a-service operation. The advisory states that RESITA actors have compromised organizations in education, manufacturing, information technology, and government sectors, and any ransom paid is split between the group and affiliates. RESITA actors leverage external-facing remote services such as VPNs, zero-logon vulnerability, and phishing campaigns to gain initial access and persistence within the network. Fortinet has published an analysis of the RESITA intrusion, noting, quote, The majority of the TTPs employed by the threat actor during this intrusion are typical of these types of ransomware intrusions, and no novel techniques were observed. While the threat actor may have had more sophisticated TTPs within their repertoire, in this case, they were able to achieve their outcome using exclusively unsophisticated known TTPs. As ransomware and extortion-based attacks continue to affect thousands of victims like this one across the globe every day, organizations should focus on ensuring they can detect more of the basic TTPs employed throughout this intrusion. Researchers at Bitdefender have uncovered previously unknown attack methods for escalating a compromise from a single endpoint to a network-wide breach in Google Workspace. The technique involves an OAuth 2.0 refresh token stored by Google Credential Provider for Windows. The refresh token follows a two-step storage process. First, it's temporarily stored in the registry, and later finds a more permanent home under the user's Chrome profile. Decrypting it is possible from both locations, each with its own set of pros and cons. The registry approach is stealthier, offering a discrete way of accessing the token. However, it does have a drawback. It's only available for a limited time. On the other hand, the profile-based storage method provides a more extended time frame for access, but it's harder to conceal, making it a noisier option. Reversing Labs today draws attention to the phenomenon of protestware, that is, the practice of concealing scripts advocating for some political position and NPM packages embedded in open-source software. The message is commonly displayed after a user installs or executes the software. Reversing Labs states that although the latest packages are not malicious, they underscore a persistent risk in open-source software in which unintended and malicious features can lurk undetected, even in widely used applications. The two campaigns discussed in the report are being run separately in the Palestinian and Ukrainian interests, and while protestware tends to shadow current events, it's not confined to the fighting in Ukraine or Gaza. SectorCert, Denmark's cybersecurity center for the critical sectors, this week described what it characterized as the largest cyber attack on record against the country's critical infrastructure. In May of this year, an APT group, which SectorCert associates with Sandworm, simultaneously hit 22 companies in Denmark's highly decentralized electric power sector. The attacks, which began on May 11th and continued into the last week of this month, exploited CVE-2023-28771, a critical command injection flaw affecting Zyxel firewalls. The vulnerability had been disclosed and addressed in late April, but the attackers were able to find enough unpatched systems to gain access. The attack was ultimately detected and stopped without disruption to the power distribution. 
but it seems to have been aimed at gaining comprehensive access to Denmark's grid. The attacks proper were preceded by a reconnaissance phase that began in January. A simultaneous attack against so many targets suggests both careful planning and determined execution. Sector Cert properly notes the difficulties of attribution and stops short of saying the incident was the work of Russia's GRU. But on form, it certainly looks like a sandworm operation. Similar attacks have been mounted against Ukraine's power grid, and the incident in Denmark strongly suggests that infrastructure in what Moscow tends to call the collective West can be expected to figure in Russian target lists. And finally, Abnormal Security this morning described a continuing criminal campaign that lures its victims with fish bait that appeals for donations to ease the plight of Palestinian children suffering the present war between Hamas and Israel. The phishing email contains neither malicious attachments nor malicious links. Instead, it simply asks that contributions be deposited in cryptocurrency wallets specified in the email. Donations are accepted in Bitcoin, Litecoin, or Ethereum. The email is generally well-written in idiomatic American English, lacking the usual stigmata of non-standard grammar and awkward usage. To lend credibility to the appeal, the scammers include links to real resources describing shortages of clean water and medicine. Coming up after the break, Jason Meller, founder and CEO of Collide, joins us as part of our sponsored Industry Voices segment to discuss the findings from the Shadow IT Report. In this week's Threat Vector segment, David Moulton sits down with Sama Machada, a consultant at Unit 42, to discuss the fascinating world of social engineering attacks. Stick around. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. 
With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. I stumbled into cybersecurity by accident. I actually switched majors six times in college and happened to find a class that was an intro to cybersecurity class. It was an elective called From Hackers to CEOs, Intro to Information Security. And I was like, ooh, that sounds fun. I took the two unit elective and the rest was history. I absolutely fell in love with it. And that completely changed the trajectory of my life. Welcome to Threat Factor, a segment where Unit 42 shares unique threat intelligence insights, new threat actor TPTs, and real-world case studies. Unit 42 is a global team of threat intelligence experts, incident responders, and proactive security consultants dedicated to safeguarding our digital world. I'm your host, David Moulton, Director of Thought Leadership for Unit 42. In today's episode, I'm going to talk with Sama Manchenda. Sama is a consultant at Unit 42. She's hyper-competitive in the video game Just Dance and will take on anyone with the song Rasputin. Sama, where are you recording from today? I am recording from Austin, Texas. When you and I were thinking about the show, you pitched me on this idea of the the ish tales, the smishing, the vishing, the fishing, and that dual view on social engineering. But help me understand what's going on with those different ishings. They're all, all three of them are different types of social engineering attacks. Phishing being the most common is related to email or usually targeting users to click on a link of some kind. Smishing is similar, just uses texting or SMS instead. And then phishing is over the phone usually involves some level of talking to another person and trying to do some actual like interaction with them to gain access or gain information of some kind. From an offensive security perspective, what strategies or techniques do attackers often employ to make their social engineering attacks more successful? Some of the tactics that make a lot of these attackers more successful are like more thorough research and the more tailored approach to the environment. So those nitty gritty details of figuring out exactly what process or what system is in place uh, can help establish that trust, establish that rapport with the end user and make them think that this is more believable or this isn't something of high concern. For example, with phishing, knowing exactly the type of email provider that they're using or VPN provider or something like that and having somebody reset their credentials, if they see like the right logo, if they see the right tool or whatever, they're more likely to fall for that attack and enter their credentials versus, you know, if I'm a Microsoft 365 user and, you know, this is a phishing email for Gmail, they're more likely to immediately off the bat recognize something is off. For phishing, the fact that you know about employees to sort of convince a help desk employee that you are, in fact, this other employee. And you can say like, oh, okay, well, I know I'm supposed to have this running on my system or, you know, I know that Cortex-XDR is running on my system, for example. That establishes some level of trust with the help desk person that, oh, okay, this person's actually looking at their laptop and like actually is running 
you know, tools that they're supposed to be. As you were saying this, one of the things that has stuck out to me when I've got a phishing email that tells me that my Windows machine has uh, been infected, I always chuckle to myself because I only <laughs> use a little iPad uh, as my as my personal device. Could you share some insights on the the DFER side, the digital forensics and incident response? How social engineering attacks like phishing are used as attack factors in larger networks and intrusion cases? So we very commonly see things like phishing, phishing, smishing, and mainly we see them as an in like an initial intrusion vector. And we also sometimes see it as a way for them to move laterally or move around and try and basically spread themselves further in an environment. In the cases of phishing and smishing, we've seen a bunch of large engagements where attackers have done their due diligence with reconnaissance and targeted large numbers of employees with emails or texts, directing them to click malicious links and enter their credentials. On the vishing side, we've seen engagements where attackers have targeted IT support staff and are able to either gain access to user accounts by impersonating users and saying, hey, I need help with my password, can you reset it? We've seen cases where the attackers are actually able to trick the IT support staff into granting them access as well. And like, those are, those are really dangerous. Help the listener understand what's the most important thing that they should be taking away from this conversation. Um, so continuously training and educating people to be aware and to be alert and to just question, you know, when things aren't quite right is the biggest thing, I think. The sad truth of security is that end users like people like you and me um, are the most vulnerable part of any company. And that includes people, again, even with a lot of training, people still make mistakes. Having a culture where employees feel safe to raise those questions and self-report is, I think, just as important as having the training in place. If somebody's afraid to report that they have made a mistake or something doesn't seem right, all that creates more time in which an attacker has unfettered access to the environment. So it sounds like if you're trying to put together a security culture in your organization, find a way to give people the confidence that when they have made a mistake or think they've made a mistake, that it isn't retaliation or a punishment. Yeah, absolutely. Sama, thanks for joining me today on Threat Vector to share your tales of ishing. We'll be back on CyberWire Daily in two weeks. Until then, stay secure, stay vigilant. Goodbye for now. That's David Moulton speaking with Sama Machada, a consultant at Unit 42. Zero Trust Access provider Collide recently published their Shadow IT report, surveying over 300 IT security and business folks to learn more about what workers do on unmanaged devices. Jason Meller is founder and CEO at Collide, and in this sponsored Industry Voices interview, we dig into some of the surprising details from the report. Anytime that you put a report like this together, any survey, you immediately regret not asking additional questions because every survey that comes out, you're just like, wow, this <laughs> revealed so much. I wish I had asked X, Y, and Z. But we did have the foresight to, I think, dig in the right, in, the right areas to really understand 
the crux of the problem, how pervasive it is, and effectively why it's occurring. So the first stat that really surprised us was that 75% of the workforce admitted to doing work on non-company-owned devices. And uh, we always knew that that number was going to be high, but to hear it be 75% of the workforce doing some amount of work on non-company-owned devices was surprising to us. The next logical question we had after that, because I think the first place I would go is, oh, this must be happening on phones. We're talking about mobile, we're talking about email, or maybe even a little bit of chat. We're not talking about real stuff, and we're not talking about laptops. Well, no, we found that a lot of the stuff people admitted to doing wasn't just email. It was effectively things that were really concerning, like cloud-based file sharing. 54% of respondents said that they were doing that on work devices. Customer service, 46%. Software development, so that's folks writing code. Uh, 29% folks uh, admitted that they were doing that. Even more concerning, managing cloud infrastructure. So I'm talking about logging into Amazon, pushing things to production. 27% respondents said that they were doing that. And uh, we also had a whole segment in the survey talking about AI-based application use, so ChatGPT, GitHub Copilot, things like that. Uh, a quarter of folks said that they were using those tools on their personal devices. So we see here that there is a major desire by these employees to use their personal devices while they're working remotely or maybe even in the workplace to do their job. And uh, the next question we asked to that was why? And the survey also revealed that the number one reason people did this was simply because they liked their device better. That was the number one cited reason. I expected to hear, oh, it's because there's this onerous MDM solution or I don't think, maybe I'm being surveilled. No, it was just, I don't like my device better. I have a better Mac or whatever it was. That's mm-hmm. what's getting folks to, to do this. Wow, that's an interesting insight. <laughs> I'm curious, how does this uh, intersect with folks who are investing in things like zero trust? Yeah, I think that the zero trust push right now is really about recognizing that things have really changed in the last three to four years. Previously, and I remember this before I started Collide when I was working at a big company, my day-to-day experience was taking my work laptop, signing into the VPN, and about half the apps I needed to access were in that private network. And the other half the apps were SaaS apps. But the ones that were in the network were the most important ones and wanted to lock those down. Never occurred to me to take my VPN client and put it on my personal device that always felt like a bridge too far. But now you have organizations and you have end users who are working from home. Their personal laptop is right there. And the majority of the work that they're doing is on SaaS apps that are outside of the private network. In fact, if they forget to connect to the VPN, their experience in terms of what they're able to do and not able to do is almost effectively the same. So it's no surprise to me that folks then say, well, why don't I just use my personal laptop for this? Clearly, the IT and security team isn't asserting any sort of technological protection to stop that from happening. So maybe implicitly, they're saying it's fine, because otherwise, wouldn't they do that? So now you have folks that are doing that, 
and they don't even know that it's bad. They're doing it with impunity and they're answering surveys like the one that we worked with dimensional research on and they're actually admitting to it. I think that's really surprising to, to a lot of IT and security practitioners. That's why we published the report. And I think it underscores the importance of any zero trust goals or mission that you have at your organization. At the end of the day, zero trust is about ensuring that not just the correct user is signing in, but a big part of it is device trust, ensuring that they're using the correct laptop. And the thing that we do at Collide is we assist with that by not just ensuring the right laptop is able to access the apps, but that the laptop is in a state that the IT and security team really care about. So is is it patched? Is the browser patched? Uh, Is there any sensitive data on that device that shouldn't be there? Is it enrolled on the MDM? These are all things that we can detect. And if they aren't correct, we can actually block the device and then ask the end user to fix any issues before they're allowed to sign in again. That, I think, is something folks should really start looking at because the data is showing us that if you're not doing that, your end users are doing work on their personal device, which is not good. Based on the information that you all gathered here in the study, what are your recommendations? What do you hope people take away from it? Well, I hope it kicks off a conversation between IT practitioners, security teams, and end users. I think that a lot of this is happening um, and there's an awareness that it could be happening at a small amount or small level, but at the end of the day, it's the majority of their employees are, are, are not using the right devices to sign in. And I think that the conversation, I think, starts with, okay, why is that bad? Do we really care about that? And uh, we've tried to enumerate what are the risks. You know, Beyond the obvious, you don't want sensitive data from those apps to live on the device. Every time a web browser makes a successful authentication attempt to any SaaS app, there is some transference of essentially uh, authentication, like plain text credentials, like in the form of cookies. Like we've seen with the Okta hack and, uh, you know, the MGM hack, there is a big appetite for uh, malware authors and cyber criminals to harvest these credentials. And you really want to be in a place from an IT security perspective where, If you're trying to detect that style of malware and those styles of attacks, you want to do so on the devices that you've provisioned so that you can install things like CrowdStrike or other EDR tools. If the end users are using their own tools out there or their own devices, you don't have any visibility or ownership of those devices and you can't deploy a detection apparatus that's going to find those types of problems. And all it takes is one or two of those cookies falling in the wrong hands They establish a session in a system they shouldn't have access to, and that could lead to a major incident. So I think we've done a great job as an industry of forcing cyber criminals to a place where they have to now start compromising endpoints to be able to sign into stuff. Phishing is really hard to do now with phishing-resistant multi-factor auth, and there's less and less network-based attacks you can deploy to get that level of access. All the good stuff is now on the device. And now it's time to really have a, a, a discussion with security leadership and end users that, hey, it may be more convenient for you to use personal devices, but we can't properly protect the organization and you without some oversight and management capability on those devices. And that starts with making sure they're using the right device to access the company's resources. That's Jason Meller, founder and CEO at Collide. 
with over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Ivan. Our mixer is me, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. This show is written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. <laughs>